Henry V was pissed off. It was the year 1106 in summer and his army, together with the contingent of his magnates from many parts of the empire, clashed against Cologne's newly created bulwarks. Without any success, again and again, but the people of Cologne repelled wave after wave of attacks against them. Henry V was not to be able to conquer Cologne by military force. What was the reason for that? You'll find out in this episode. Because what failed in 1074 was to succeed for the first time in 1106. Cologne's population finally stepped onto the political stage as a powerful political player, and it did so against its own archbishop and thus the city ruler. And with that, welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne, today's western Germany, that is over 2000 years old, but until became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past, hence it can therefore be seen as a kind of European microcosm. In this podcast, you can listen as the city grows, from the Romans up until the present time. What is this episode about? Nothing more or less than the confirmation of my oldest thesis that Cologne was always flexible when it came to loyalty to rulers. What was already evident in Cologne in 70 AD during the Batavian Revolt is also evident now 10,036 years later. When it came to its own advantage, Cologne was always immediately involved. And we find out why the quarrel of an old emperor with his son had a decisive positive influence on the further development of Cologne. Off to the intro. I hope you have come well into the new year. I wish you all the best and love in this world for 2023. Two episodes ago, we had concluded the year 1074 with the revolt of the citizens of Cologne against Archbishop Anno in such a way that we have seen a first revolt in here, but not yet a general uprising of the people. But in 1106, we can clearly assume that. This time, it really involved the majority of the inhabitants of Cologne. Why? Because the events of that fateful year of 1106 point to it. The city, with the exception of a few Limburg mercenaries, single-handedly repels an attack by the ruler of the realm. For weeks, the city withstood the onslaught of the royal army and its allies and was even able to persuade them to withdraw. A city divided and divided in politics would hardly have been able to do that. But let's go back a bit. How did it come about that here in 1106 in July the army of Henry V attacked the largest city of his own empire, that is our Cologne? Here I would like to warn you. As is so often the case in royal dynasties, people like to give this same handful of names. We will therefore have here two main actors in this episode with the same name, Henry IV and Henry V, the father and the son. I will try as often as possible to make clear which Henry occurs here, the old Henry IV and the young Henry V, and I pray that I will not confuse them. It might happen, but I pray it will not happen. But as I said, let's go back in history a little 
a few years before this siege of Cologne 1106, the spirit of the revolt against the archiepiscopal rule of 1074 had presumably not subsided over the decades among Cologne's economic elite, the craftsmen and merchants of the city. As in so many cities in Europe, the communal movement slowly took hold. Civic forces in the cities demanded more rights and privileges from their former masters, be they nobles or bishops, as in Worms and also in Mainz, for example. In many episcopal cities, people wanted to curtail and push back the temporal power of the bishop as the supreme ruler of the city. But as we know, Anna II had been able to defend the struggle for city rule in 1074 for the first time for the old for his order. Even Emperor Henry IV, who would have liked to give the inhabitants of Cologne more political rights in order to punish his former captor in the form of Archbishop Anna II, was political too weak at the time in 1074 when the Cologne uprising against uh, the city ruler had failed, as you learned in the episode. He had to tolerate Anno's actions since he, Henry IV, needed him as a political ally in a struggle for power in the empire. But what Henry IV was unable to do so in 1074, he was able to do now in part in 1106. Anno had already been dead for more than 30 years. For more than 50 years now, Henry IV was the ruler of the empire. Yes, still that Henry IV who was once kidnapped as a child by Anno II in 1062. Henry IV had one of the most chaotic reigns ever in the Middle Ages, as Dirk himself put it some episodes before here in our little chat. The reasons are too numerous, you'd best to listen that than in Dirk's podcast, History of the Germans, at the appropriate place. Once again, for the record, Henry IV was the ruler of the empire now for 50 years. He went from one crisis to the next and still survived. But unlike Otto I, who also mastered many crises in the course of his long reign, Henry IV never really emerged strengthened from his conflicts, with the exception of retaining life and rule. In retrospect, Henry IV was almost miraculously still the ruler after 50 years of perceived permanent crisis, uprisings, and on top of that, bickering with the Pope in Rome, keyword investiture controversy. His son with the same name and number five, however, saw his inheritance in danger. In his view, Henry V's view, Daddy Henry IV was driving the empire against the wall. The true motives why Henry V betrayed his imperial father, number four, are part of passionate debates in historical research to this day. They should not be of further interest to us here. From 1104, the younger Henry began to work against his father, the older Henry IV. One year before the events of the intro of this episode in 1105, Henry V had actually then made it. The father was his prisoner. The latter had almost begged for his son to depose him as a ruler. The transfer of rule to the next generation within the Salian dynasty seemed to go comparatively smoothly. But then, in February 1106, the actually impossible happened. Old Henry IV managed to escape from captivity. And where had the escaped father fled to? 
to Cologne of all places. The city had already helped him 1105 in the fight for the crown. Which is funnily enough because in fact the acting Archbishop of Cologne, Frederick, had already recognized younger Henry V as the new ruler and invited him to the city for Easter. In the meantime, the older Henry, the daddy, had gone to Liège, where he still had political support. When younger Henry V heard that his daddy, the old Henry IV, had already moved on to Liège, he indeed came to Cologne for a short stop. But before he wanted to celebrate Easter in Cologne, he wanted to deal with some business. The businessmen fighting nobles in the west of Cologne in the Meuse River region. But there, he and his army were crushed at Vissé on Maundy Thursday, March 22nd, 1106. Vizé is today a Belgian town located just south of Maastricht in the Netherlands and thus only a stone's throw away from Cologne. By car, according to Google Maps, it's only a 75-minute drive at about 120 kilometers. So, your army is gone and you are in the enemy territory? No problem, thought the young ruler Henry No. 5. After all, it's Maundy Thursday and hadn't the city of Cologne, with its archbishop at its head, invited me to the Easter feast, which was just around the corner in three days? Really cool, isn't it? And so Henry V went, to, went back to Cologne with his scattered bodyguard or what was left of his army. But as he approached the city gates, something unpleasant happened. The archbishop may have extended the invitation, but the people of the city were probably not at all enthusiastic about Henry V's visit. They simply refused to allow the young ruler to enter the city. How exactly they did it, whether they slammed the city gates in front of him, a crowd of people prevented him from entering the city, irrelevant, we, uh, we, I don't know. But the fact is, he did not get in. But who was behind that? We can assume that with some certainty. It will have been the same kind of people, the most distinguished and richest citizens and their families with their entourage of the city, who once in 1074 had already rebelled against Anno II. This shows that by now they had largely organized themselves as a group and also colluded to take coordinated actions like this one, denying the young King Henry V entry into the city. Now, that is humiliating enough to lose your army in a battle, but then, despite being on the guest list, not to be let into the club by the bouncers and the party people? That was the last straw. But not only that. The people of Cologne let it be known that no matter what some princes, magnates, or whoever somewhere had decided for them, the people of Cologne, it still applied the old Henry IV, not the fifth who was standing in front of the gates right now, so the father of the just-rejected guest, is still the rightful ruler of the empire for the city on the Rhine and its inhabitants. So Cologne said to put in today's language, piss off, you Henry V. I'm sorry for cursing, but you're listening to a podcast about human history. Um, so you, <laughs> there are worse things happening in this uh, storyline than cursing. At a time when preserving one's honor as a ruler was everything, even more than today, you can imagine how calm Henry V reacted to all this. Not at all calm.
Okay, now we know why Henry V was angry and would march on Cologne in July 1106 with a new army that he had previously assembled at Koblenz. But how did this rather dynastic conflict between emperor and son led to a positive turn for Cologne's further development. The interesting thing here is the love of the people of Cologne for the old Emperor Henry IV. One could now rumor that he had certainly paid a lot of money, but no, it was on the initiative of the people of Cologne that his son, the young Henry V, was denied entry into the city at Easter. Where did this sympathy come from for the old emperor? At first glance, this is not so easy to answer because it was the old emperor was the one who did not help the people of Cologne in 1074 in their struggle against the archbishop. But one can make some speculations. After 1074, another 10 visits of Henry IV to Cologne are documented. That's a lot for an, for an emperor to visit one place in particular. He celebrated, so Henry IV, celebrated the highest feast of Christianity, Easter, in the city in 1076 and 1078, as well as Christmas in the years 1084 and 1098. Perhaps old Henry IV had therefore simply been taken firmly to heart due to his numerous visits by the people of Cologne. Even when old Henry, more or less political dad than alive, sought refuge in Cologne in 1106, the year we are dealing with right now, the people of Cologne would even have given him a really great reception if the aging emperor had not refused. Okay, but let's face it, love is nice, but in the tough world of politics, love won't get you very far. Of course, the people of Cologne also had other reasons that presumably played a role here by taking sides with Henry IV. Cologne's economic boom had developed in particular through long-distance trade. Duke Henry of Limburg, oh no, not another man, with the name Henry. This Limburg Henry was a friend of old Emperor Henry IV and was an enemy of young Henry V. And this duke was an important trading partner of Cologne in the near vicinity. I would like to talk more about this aspect in the next episode. And hadn't the Limburg Henry just defeated the young Henry V at the Battle of Visay shortly before Easter on Maundy Thursday? So let's better take sides with him. huh? Full of rage, the young Henry V wrote a letter to all the princes, bishops and magnates of the empire complaining about the humiliation he got by the city of Cologne and asking for troops for a war campaign against the city on the Rhine. If you think that the reaction of the young Henry V was exaggerated, you should consider the following. Cologne was the largest city in the Rhineland and the largest city in the whole empire. And this city now had sided with the de presumably deposed emperor. The defection of Cologne to the enemy camp could trigger a domino effect, and Henry V would face a regency as chaotic as his father's the last 50 years. A condition that he nevertheless tried so vehemently to end as the new ruler of the empire. For not only Cologne, but also in the Meuse region, today's triangle of Germany, the Netherlands and Belgium, an open rebellion against the young Henry V had already broken out. There too, as you learned, he had gotten a bloody nose shortly before um, 
Easter. Yes, yes, I can really understand young Henry V gathering an army at Koblenz, even though he tries to attack my hometown. But Cologne was to be made an example of. Then the magnates on the Meuse would also give in and bow to his rule after he had conquered and punished Cologne. That was Henry V's plan. Who would rule the empire? The young Henry V or the old Henry IV as he did the last 50 years? The future of the empire was open. And since Henry IV was still regarded in many quarters of the empire as the rightful emperor and ruler, the people of Cologne seized the opportunity. Decrees and regulations issued by the old ruler now would still be valid, even in the wake of a possible future ruler in the role of the young Henry V. So, not only their love for the old Henry IV and the trade relations to the area of the Meuse were decisive for the support of the old emperor. No, in addition, the people of Cologne hoped to be able to get something out of it as a city population for taking a clear political position here. And the Cologne city population succeeded in this to an outstanding degree. When the old Emperor Henry IV learned of this, he had been equally surprised by the affection of the people of Cologne as his son had, he immediately travelled to our city on the Rhine. It was probably at the beginning of April when the old Emperor came to the city again. Just as a reminder, the chronology so far. Old Henry IV had been captured by the young Henry V in late 1105. In February 1106, he had escaped from captivity stopped briefly in Cologne and moved on to Liège to his supporters in the Meuse region. His son, the young Henry V, followed him there, but he received a crushing defeat at Vissé on March 22nd. Old Henry remained in the Meuse region. Young Henry retreated to Cologne in order to be able to celebrate Easter there on March 25th, but there he experienced the rebuff of his previous young rule. Aggrieved, the young Henry V since then gathered an army to move on to Cologne. In this phase, the old Emperor Henry IV came to Cologne at the beginning of April. And in July, Henry V would attack the city. But now we're still in April. Okay, I hope you got what I was trying to say. Once there, the people of Cologne seized the opportunity when Henry IV arrived in April. Together, all the citizens of Cologne took an oath to the old emperor that the city was on his side. But beyond that, the people of Cologne demanded something in return, something that was incredibly important for the future history of Cologne. Let us listen to the Hildesheim Annals as a historical source. For sufficient historical source criticism here is unfortunately not really time enough, but in brief, the Hildesheim Annals were written probably around 1125 or 1115 in the monastery of the same name in Hildesheim. Of course, these are not written neutrally by the respective author or authors. Cologne actually does not come off well in the representation here, but the year 1106 will offer an exception here. How exactly? That you will learn later. As is typical for this format of annals or yearbooks, a short summary of the history of the empire was written down for each year, even if the exact year of origin is not entirely clear. 
They were written very shortly after the time of these events in 1106, so let's listen in. Quote, But the father, with his own, celebrated Easter in Liège with great joy and after Easter returned to Cologne, and the citizens promised him on oath to guard the city for him and immediately began to fortify themselves to the best for their ability both inside and out, as he had taught them. End quote. This passage is important. Something happened here that was also recorded in other contemporary sources. The old emperor Henry IV made an alliance with Cologne, but not, and that's important, not with the official ruler of the city, the Archbishop of Cologne, but with its inhabitants, the normal people, the people of Cologne. The Archbishop, whose subjects Cologne's people were, after all, was gallantly bypassed here. Even if the year 1074 is more clearly remembered in today's Cologne's city memory with the uprising against Anne II, the year 1106, in my opinion, is the first proof that the population of Cologne, or at least the economic elite of the city, had politically emancipated themselves. And in this case, we will learn that successfully. Let's get into more details after a short break. The emancipation of Cologne's inhabitants by Henry IV can be noted on two points. The first point was of legal nature. The Hildesheim annals speak of the citizens of Cologne who had assured him of the loyalty by oath. What sounds logical if you want to say, hey, I'm your friend and I will fight to the death for you, you have to make an oath. But actually, for many Cologne citizens before, actually this had not been possible to swear an oath. And why not? Well, a large majority of the inhabitants of Cologne would not have any independent legal freedom of choice at all, since they were not freemen. The cities in the High Middle Ages recorded enormous growth in population, as I mentioned earlier. However, this was primarily due to large immigration into the cities from the countryside. There's often the widespread opinion today that if an unfree peasant made it to a city in the Middle Ages, he could then live there as a free man after a year, according to the motto, city air makes you free. But that's not really true. This is a really, really complicated topic, we must dedicate ourselves another time to it. But for now, the important thing that you have to know is that those who moved to a city like Cologne from the countryside did not lose their previous social status. However, if people of Cologne were to swear an oath of allegiance to Henry IV as a common community of oaths and provide assistance in arms on his behalf, the old emperor had to clear these legal obstacles out of the way. And we can assume that he did this in order to obtain the support of all the people of Cologne, not only the, the few rich ones. The promise to increase the freedoms, so the rights, of this largely unfree population of Cologne through imperial intercession, such as the free choice of marriage partner or free choice of work, is probably one of the reasons why the entire city population ultimately sided with the old Emperor Henry IV. The Hildesheim Annals, after all, spoke of Henry IV enabling the Cologne people to, quote, fortify themselves to the best of their ability, both within and without, as he had taught them, end quote. 
This passage is an indication that Henry IV elevated all city dwellers, young, old, poor, and rich, to a common legal level. This was a trend at that time. Thus, the inhabitants of Rhenish cities such as Speyer or Worms were to receive similar freedoms in 11, 11 and 1114. This reinforced the feeling in Cologne that, as a city population, one was now a cohesive group. Of course, this did not mean that social boundaries were abolished within the city. Differences of class within the population were, of course, not abolished. We're not in a communist society here, after all, but what do you think? Now, this was a lot of jurisprudence, but it created the basis for a more deeply felt sense of community among the people of the city, an important milestone for the development of an independently thinking and later also independently acting population of the city. This was the first point. Let's come to the second point with which the old emperor Henry IV hoped for the loyalty of the people of Cologne against his son. This was also something legal, but also something that was immediately translated into something very tangible, and this was done at a breathtaking pace. I like to repeat it again. The Hildesheim annals speak of Henry IV instructing the Cologne people to, quote, fortify themselves inside and outside to the best of their ability, end quote. With the first point, Henry had done this for the inside, in order to make them all equally uh, in right. Now it was the turn for the outside part, and we can take that very literally. With the oath of allegiance to Henry IV, the city was aware that they had made an enemy of the younger ruler, Henry V. The latter had announced his intention to visit Cologne with a large army soon. This time, Henry V, the young Henry, was to gain entry to the city, if necessary by force. Third time is the charm, you know. The inhabitants of Cologne were very aware of this. Now, Cologne was no longer only what lay within the old Roman city wall, which was now already a thousand years old. One thousand years. Significant suburbs had developed to the north, south, and also to the west, which were strategically important for Cologne's existence. Alone in Niederich, the northern suburb, was the important monastery of St. Ursula, one of the most important saints of Cologne and the city patroness. Likewise, the monastery St. Cunibert, named after the saint who once found the bones of St. Ursula, or St. Andrew, also in Niederich, or the still young monastery church of St. George, which Anno II had founded only a few decades ago in the south. Did they want to leave these important and also economically significant Cologne monasteries in the suburbs unprotected when the enemy's forces came to Cologne? Of course not. And so? Henry IV allowed the city to expand and to fortify. While in Cologne, nowadays it seems that everything takes longer in the 21st century when it comes to public buildings, planning procedures drag on endlessly, construction costs always explode miraculously and nobody knew that beforehand, and building sites just never seem to end. In 1106, the people of Cologne performed a true masterstroke in just a few weeks. Within these few weeks, breathtaking things were created. 
In total, new trenches with a length of 3,200 meters were additionally created. This was 10 to 12 meters wide and 5 meters deep. The excavated earth was used to fill up a 5 meter high earthen embankment, which was 10 to 12 meters wide. According to a conservative estimate, that's about 400,000 cubic meters of earth that were moved in the process, and for my Americans, this is 14 million cubic feet of earth that was moved. This number is not so tangible for you? That would be like digging up the volume of the entire Cologne Cathedral today. This also amounts to about 400,000 cubic meters, or as I said, 14 million cubic feet. Wait a minute, you will surely exclaim now, Willem, you said in the introduction that already in the summer of the same year, the young Henry V attacked Cologne head-on. Is it at all realistic that this project was finished in time, including the, the embankments, the ramparts? Yes, indeed, this was possible. I'm not good at math, so I trust what historical research has calculated. References and sources as always at the end of the episode, where I got this from. On average, a man can move half a cubic meter of earth per hour with the tools of the time, like a shovel. At 10 hours a day, this makes 5 cubic meters per man. It was then calculated that it only took 1,000 workers to achieve this in about 60 working days. That's a period that was quite given between April and July. In any case, it is certain when Henry V attacked, the embankments, the ramparts and moats were ready to stop the enemy. What we haven't even talked about yet, where was this uh, new fortification uh, created? I will post a map in the blog post for this episode on the historyofcologne.com and then in the coming following days also on social media, of course. But imagine Cologne in its Roman walls. You don't have to know how that looks like, in, because this layout in your mind was almost a square. The Roman colony was almost a square with its wall around it. Now imagine adding to this almost perfect square a large semicircle to the north and south and a smaller semicircle to the west. This is roughly how Cologne now looked from the air. A square with three new semicircles enclosing the suburb of Niederich with St. Cunibert and St. Ursula, like St. Andrew in the north, and the suburb of Oversburg in the south with St. George and St. John Baptiste. And in the west, west of today's Neumark, the new market, a smaller area had been added to protect St. Apostles. As I said, look at the homepage or on social media in the coming days to see what I mean. Now, Cologne was ready for the attack of the young ruler Henry V, who sought here the decision to finally depose his old daddy and emperor. He would put the city's defenses to the first test. So that's time to take another breath. Henry V had about 20,000 soldiers called together by his supporters at Koblenz, a city in the southern Rhineland. In July, he crossed the Rhine with his army and marched north towards Cologne. Apparently, the young Henry V did not rely on a long siege, but tried several times to take the city by storm. 
This battle at Cologne is also mentioned in the Hildesheim Annals. Let's have a look. Because the Hildesheim Annals have acquired the praise for the people of Cologne. Quote, the people of Cologne, however, stood fearlessly, like good knights in brave resistance and fierce battle, such as had never been seen before, and with them, some of the human race called Geldunen, whom Duke Henry had sent to their aid, brave and capable men and thoroughly skilled in war. For this reason, many were wounded and fell, and the king's army was unable to overpower them and when he had lain three weeks before the city and had no prospect of winning it, he led the army away to Aachen. For there was great heat, and from the strong stench the army could no longer endure the toil. End quote. Isn't that awesome? I mean, war's always bad, don't get me wrong, but with a thousand years of distance, maybe I can still say that. Cologne had withstood a large royal army. With the support of some mercenaries of the Limburg Henry, who was the ally of the old Henry IV and enemy of young Henry V. Man, way too many Henrys here in this episode. I hope you're still coming along. But this victory over King young Henry V will have immensely strengthened the still young sense of community within Cologne's urban society. All this shows this would not have been possible without a majority, all-inclusive participation of all inhabitants of Cologne. The besiegers had tried to bring in supplies via the Rhine River during the three to four weeks, but they had not reckoned with the people of Cologne who cleverly intercepted and destroyed the ships. The steadfastness of the Cologne army on the new fortress walls, as well as the hot summer weather with the typical diseases that occur during sieges, probably gave Henry V's army the rest. Humiliated once again, he withdrew from the walls of Cologne du Aachen, and Cologne was never conquered by him. What does this city extension of 1106 show? Joint action of the people of Cologne, after all. It required a joint effort that a few rich citizens and their servants could never have accomplished. Here a large part of the city population was involved, as well as in the defense of the city. The long defenses were hardly effective if they were not manned by a strong crew of Cologne citizens who were willing and able to defend them. The self-confidence in the city must have been great in 1106. Without an archbishop at all, they had enormously expanded their own rights as a city population, fortified and integrated the city's wealthy suburbs, and fought off a royal army to boot. This was another milestone in Cologne's urban history, and this time much more lasting than the failed rebellion against Anno II in 1074. From now on, the city population and the episcopal rule, besides quite long phases of fruitful cooperation and coexistence, would clash again and again in the coming decades and centuries to come, with sometimes very violent confrontations. But that is for another time. But wait a minute, Willem, you said in the beginning of the episode this was a good example of an old characteristic of Cologne's history, to be flexible in loyalty. That's right, because even though Cologne benefited enormously from the events of 1106 for Henry IV, it was 
only a very brief moment of triumph. Why? Well, as we also notice with Queen Elizabeth II, as inconceivable as that may be for the respective witnesses of the time, if myself, even the longest reign of a monarch comes to an end at some point. On August the 7th, 1106, just a few days after the triumph of Cologne over, his, over old Henry's son, Henry V, the old emperor, Henry IV, died in Liege. He had ruled the empire for exactly 50 years, or 53 years, if you count his co-regency under his father. And what a regency it was. However, I do not take the liberty of judging this now. You can do that or learn that elsewhere. Because we have other problems to solve. The problem that the citizens of Cologne had now lost the person on whom they had stacked everything in the poker game of the year 1106. But to shorten this now, because it comes also slowly late here, the short version. An extremely pragmatic solution was found between both parties, the city of Cologne and Henry V. The people of Cologne asked nicely with the now undisputed young ruler of the empire, Henry V, quite sweetly for forgiveness, like, hey, I didn't mean anything by it, it was just a misunderstanding. And as a sign of goodwill, the townspeople paid 5,000 marks of silver. Doesn't that mean anything to you either? That's just a ton of silver. One ton of silver. Do you think it is too much? Well, you have to think of that. At least Henry V accepted that the construction of the new ramparts and ditches, which his father had ordered the people of Cologne to build to fight against him, could continue to exist and were lawful after all. If one considers that he himself, Henry V, had once failed in this, to overcome them, and that the Archbishop of Cologne, Frederick, himself was furious about the unauthorized execution of this entire construction project because he thought, after all, he was the one deciding this uh, right. The question is justified as to who really came out as the winner here. A ton of silver was quickly spent, but the new fortifications remained forever and secured the city forever. I think that's a good deal. Let's come slowly to the end. The year 1106 is an important milestone in the history of Cologne. I know, I just mentioned it. The people of Cologne skillfully exploit the dynastic conflict of the empire between father and son, thus circumventing the will of their own archbishop-slash-city ruler, maintain legal equality within the city, are allowed to expand their city through new fortifications and put a huge royal army to flight. This was something that visibly made Sancta Colonia, Holy Cologne, Hillige Köln, and especially its inhabitants, even more self-confident. It's been a long time since we got a picture of the city and of the people who lived here at the beginning of the 12th century. It's time. We'll do that the next episode. We will take a look at Cologne, literally. And I'm looking forward to it very much. The holidays are behind us all. I had taken it a little easier, therefore I'm glad that I could rely on very good literature here. 
Many thanks to the historians Karl Dietmar and Hugo Stehkemper, who have presented the year 1106 excellently in the High Middle Ages volume on the history of Cologne. The translation of the Hildesheim Annals into German, the monks have written all this originally in medieval Latin, I have used from a digital copy, the link to it I put in the show notes. One request, as always. Recommend this podcast to others and most importantly, rate this podcast on your podcast platform. That is the best and easiest way to support this podcast. And in my link tree in the show notes, you can learn also how you can additionally help to make the history of Cologne accessible to more people. Maybe a Patreon membership is something for you. Why not? But well, we've come to the end of this episode. See you in three weeks when we walk through Cologne of the 12th century. Thank you very much for listening and as always, Auf Wiedersehen.